Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. This is Abdul Nasser Jengda, and you're listening to the Qalam Podcast. The Qalam Podcast has become an important part of people's lives all around the world. There are millions of people benefiting from the podcast every single day. Thousands of hours of content, dozens of different series from all the different teachers and scholars here at Qalam. All of this is delivered to the community free of charge. We are excited and actively working to grow and increase our efforts to deliver more and more benefit to the community. We ask you to support our efforts and become part of the Qalam family. Please go to qalamfamily.com and sign up to contribute to this Sadaqa Jariya on a monthly basis. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from all of us Jazakumullahu khairan wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah wa kafa wa salamu ala ibadihi al-lazhin ustafa. Khususan ala sayyidi rusuli wa khatim al-anbiya. Wa ala alihi al-askiya wa ashabihi al-atqiya. Amma ba'd. We are studying the book of Sheikh Abdul Fattah Abu Ghuddah rahimahullahu ta'ala. Rasul al-Mu'allim, asalibuhu fi ta'lim. The teaching methodology of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This last week I was in Alabama. I went to visit an Islamic school and they had a hifd graduation. While I was there I met a young man, mashaAllah. He told me that he was in the middle of choosing a career. He's already been a teacher for maybe a few decades and he was planning what to do next if he should continue being a teacher or change his career. So he came and told me that I listened to your weekly halqa at the Carrollton Masjid regularly. So while I was in the middle of deciding what to do next, I joined in on one of the classes. And at that point, we were discussing the importance of teaching. So the statement that I made at that point was, be a teacher, be a teacher, be a teacher. Because the Prophet says, I was sent as a teacher. He said, when I heard that riwayah, I made niyyah to be a teacher for the rest of my life. So when I went to Alabama, he was there teaching Qur'an and teaching Islamic studies. It brought so much joy and happiness. Because when we teach these classes, when we cover these texts, the truth is that the hope is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inspires someone's heart to do the good that we are incapable of doing ourselves. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, that sometimes you convey the knowledge to someone who understands it better. That they actually implement it and they bring it into the, their life. That sometimes the one who the knowledge is conveyed to is able to protect it in a more meaningful way. I thought about this. Why is it that we are studying this subject? This is something we covered at the beginning of the year, but I wanted to bring it up again. It seems to someone that may see this topic that this is some sort of very specialized class on education. And without doubt, it is. Because we're studying the 
educational methodology of Rasulullah But then it also hit me that the reason why many people may find this as an irrelevant subject to themselves is because when we think of teacher, we're thinking of someone standing in front of a chalkboard. We're envisioning someone standing at the front of an auditorium, someone that's in a classroom. But when you study the moments where Rasulullah was teaching the companions, it wasn't in front of a blackboard or it wasn't in front of a group of students that were seated in chairs or an auditorium. Teaching was something that happened as second nature. It was a part of who Rasulullah was. There were no dull moments with the Prophet that wherever he went, he was a teacher. So when you're with your spouse, with your children, at work, you're sitting in a cab, waiting at the airport, sitting in a plane, there are opportunities there at every moment to impart knowledge. Obviously, you have to ensure the moment is right, as we've covered earlier on. When you look at it from this perspective, you understand that learning this subject and understanding and taking this deep dive into what kind of teacher, educator Rasulullah was, it instantly becomes relevant to every person. And by studying this text and by reading these diwayat, you are changing who you are. You're transforming yourself from the mindset of, I'm not worthy of being a teacher. I can never be a teacher. I'm not qualified to be a teacher to making yourself worthy of it. And if we can make this change occur, our society will be full of positive influence. Everyone will be teaching in some form or another. We already are, but now we'll know how to do it. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us that tawfiq and allow us to live in an environment where education flourishes, where knowledge is wide and spread, and people know their deen. So today we're going to start with chapter number 20. تَعْلِيمُهُ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ بِالسُّكُوتِ وَالْإِقْرَارِ عَلَى مَا حَدَثَ أَمَامَهُ Go ahead. Teaching by remaining silent over what occurs in one's presence. This is one of the categories of the sunnah. The scholars of jurisprudence and the scholars of hadith refer to this as taqriyah. Um, tacit approval. If any Muslim said or did something in the presence of Rasulullah and he did not explicitly disapprove of it, but instead remained silent or was openly pleased with it, then this was an indication from Rasulullah that any academic matters by quoting only to a hadith in this regard. We're going to read uh, hadith number 96. Abu Dawood narrates on the authority of Ahmad bin As, who said, I had a wet dream on a cold night while we were in the battle of Badat al-Salasim. I feared that if, if I were to take a bath, I would die because of the severe cold. So I made tayammum and led my companions for the Fajr Salah. They then related this incident to Rasulullah. He said, Oh Ahmad, you led your companions in Salah while you were in a state of major impurity. So I informed him of what had prevented me from taking a bath in the severe cold. And I said to him, I heard Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying in the Quran, 
Do not kill yourselves. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is certainly merciful towards you. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam then laughed and did not say anything. Yeah. So, فَضَحِكَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ sallallahu When he presented this argument, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَا تَقْتُلُوا أَنفُسَكُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ بِكُمْ رَحِيمًا That do not kill yourselves, for Allah is merciful to you. Um, therefore, I deduce that taking a shower would be causing death to myself. He was in a cold place. Taking a shower was dangerous for him. So he said, O Messenger of Allah, I deduce the ruling from this and Rasulullah's teaching moment there was a smile accompanied with silence. Proud of him that you did it right. This is what we call taqreer al Nabi. Go ahead. Chapter number 21 Utilization of Opportune Moments. Intihazuhu al Munasabat al Arida fit Ta'alim. Intihazuhu ay ikhtinamu. How Rasulullah utilized appropriate moments to teach something was happening, everyone was there. So an example of this would be that a child is born. So if you have the opportunity, you say something in that regard, the birth of a child. Someone is conducting a nikah, there's an audience there. You speak two words about the place and maqam of nikah in Islam. You're going for a hike, you're with some folks, you talk about the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You're shopping and you see some rice and maybe you reflect over how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through his infinite mercy has given us access to such a beautiful source of nourishment. And the journey that this rice goes through for it to be in front of us wherever You're at a burial and you reflect over death of Ta'ala, the weakness of the insan, and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala expiates the sins of a servant through their difficulties. You're playing games with someone, you talk about something from there, that you're able to connect things to what's relevant at that moment. What's important is that when you're discussing things that are relevant, don't force it, because then it becomes cheesy. You have to feel the vibe in that moment, that are these people ready for a reflection. Will they be able to appreciate what I'm going to say and then connect it? The beautiful thing then is that they will never see that thing the same way again. They'll never see a dog the same way again. They'll never see a bird the same way again. If you help them connect when they see a tree from now on, it'll be a new experience. Rasulullah when he entered into the market, he educated regarding commercial law, specifically focusing on deception, that do not cheat one another. So not every day when the companions come to the market, they remember that day that Rasul came to the market and he corrected us here. Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and then Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam educated them accordingly. Yes, go ahead. In this way, he combined the opportunity with the knowledge which he wished to spread and, and uh, propagate. This served as the clearest of explanations. It was less understood and easily grasped by those who listened to the message. Muslim narrates on the authority of Jabir who said, Rasulullah walked through the marketplace, entering it via the outskirts of Medina. Uh, people, were on, people were on either side of him. Yeah. He passed by a young so There's a group of people. Marra bisuqi dakhalan 
in Ba'd al-Aliyah, from the outskirts of Medina. وَالنَّاسُ كَنَفَتَيْهِ كَنَفَتَيْهِ means بِجَانِبَيْهِ They were on both sides of him. فَمَرَّ بِجَدْيٍ مَيِّتٍ أَسَكَّ So Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam passed by an animal that was dead and it had some deformity to it. Asaka means small ears. There was a deformity to it. فَتَنَاوَلَهُ فَأَخَذَ بِأُذْنِهِ ثُمَّ قَالْ أَيُّكُمْ يُحِبُّ so there was a dead animal there. Maybe the flesh was run a little. It was deformed. The Prophet of Allah said, who would like this animal? Who would like to purchase this animal for one dirham? Bear in mind, it's dead and it's rotting. They said, we don't want that animal. What would we do with a dead animal like this? Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, would you like this animal in return of nothing? So when he said, أَتُحِبُّونَ أَنَّهُ لَكُمْ The, the مُقَدَّرْ عِبَارَةَ The hidden text there is, or the assumed text is, how about in return of nothing? You refuse the offer for one dirham, but what if I give it to you for free? قَالُوا They said, وَاللَّهِ لَوْ كَانَ حَيًّا كَانَ هَذَا السَّكَكُ عَيْبًا فِيهِ لَأَنَّهُ أَسَكَّ they said, our Messenger of Allah, if he was alive, the animal wouldn't have much value because of its deformity. Now that it's dead, it has no value at all. Rasulullah then said, just as you have no value for this deformed, dead carcass, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has no value for the dunya. And in reality, ahwan, that you may think you dislike this, Allah has even less of a concern or care for this dunya than you have for this animal. Connecting an observation, something that was there, to helping the Muslims understand what this value, what the value of the dunya is in the sight of Allah. Yes, go ahead. This is one of the best ways, by the way, to teach science. As a subject, it obviously needs to be studied in a classroom because of its intricacies and because it's a complicated subject that needs to be learned lesson by lesson. But a true experience of science or how, how, how a person understands it and internalizes it is by interacting with the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and seeing what you know come into existence. Where you tell the student, you know, we talked about photosynthesis. This is what's happening right here. Every time you drive past this tree. There are so many uh, reactions that are occurring in every leaf and every tree and every strand of grass, all by the permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the Muslim approach to education. This is the Muslim approach to education that for us, it's embedded in the existence of Allah. Knowledge is not in spite of Allah. You know, people assume that science proves God doesn't exist. How? It doesn't prove that at all. Rather, it shows that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's sunnah is to adopt asbab. The way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows this world to exist is through means. And the means, studying them, open up a chapter of depth to the one observing that this is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has allowed this to occur. Your knowledge of that thing or not never impacted the means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala adopted. You're just late to the party. You're figuring it out now when these processes existed long before you even had an aql. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed the world to continue in this manner. Shaykh al-Hind rahimahullah ta'ala, Shaykh Mahmud al-Hassan al-Dewbandi, 
towards the end of his life, he was heavily involved in the um, revolt against the British colonial powers. He was um, on his way back to India. He had gone for Hajj on his way back. He was in where the British had kept their captives. He was there for a period. Later on, after he passed away, one of his students, Sheikh Hussein Ahmad Madani, rahmatullahi alayhi, he spoke. When he heard that his Sheikh passed away, I believe he passed away in 1921 or 1922, something like this, Sheikh Al-Hind, rahmatullahi alayhi, passed away. So at that time, Mufti um, Sheikh Hussein Ahmad Madani, rahimahullah ta'ala, when he heard that his Sheikh passed away, he spoke. And he said to the people that when Sheikh went to Malta, I was there with him. And he prevented us and told us not to tell anyone about what happened while we were in prison. But now that he's passed away, I'll tell you. That the soldiers would lash him and beat him relentlessly, telling him to sign a fatwa that it was haram to revolt against the British. And he refused. He said, I'll never do it. And they beat him and beat him and beat him. Khair. After Shaykh al-Hind ta'ala, was uh, released, he was given the title Shaykh al-Hind because of his involvement uh, at a political level to gather the Muslims together to deal with the colonial British presence. This is why he was given that title. The Majlis al-Shura said to him, this is the title we'd like to offer to you. He was very old at this point in his life. So after he came back, Jamia Milliya the famous university in Aligarh was um, about to have its inauguration. It's about to come into existence, this prominent university. So the Majlis al-Shura of the university began to discuss who they would invite as their keynote. This was a big deal. A Muslim university in India, the first of its kind. So the Majlis al-Shura said, the person appropriate for this is Shaykh al-Hind, He was very old at the time. He was um, sick most of the time. He told Mufti Shabir Ahmad Usmani Saab to pen down the lecture. And he also read it to the congregation. So in that lecture, Shaykh al-Hind mentioned a few very valuable points. One of the things that he mentioned, he said there is no way for us to get out of this hot mess that we're in this bondage that, the, that these people have us in, there's no way for us to get out of this until we take control of our own education. If we don't have our own institutions, if we keep relying on their institutions, we keep relying on their culture, if we keep relying on their, clo on their clothing, on their language, and we let go of everything that belongs to us, there's no way for us to get out of this. We are selling our generations away. So Shaykh al-Hind emphasized again and again with very clear words, we will have to create our own institutions of education where we teach what we believe to be true and not that Muslims have a separate set of facts, but the facts that we all know to be true, we will present them in an Islamic framework. We will present them in an Islamic framework. By doing this, we now have some control on what happens to the generations that come ahead. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to also play such a positive role in uh, our educational system. Yes, go ahead.
قال narrates on the authority of Jabir ibn Abdullah al-Bajari radiallahu anhu who said one night we were sitting in the company of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when he looked at the full moon and said on the day of resurrection you will look at your sustainer just as you were looking at this moon you will not crowd each other in trying to look at him if you are able not to be overcome by the salah before sunrise and before sunset you should offer it he then recited the verse glorify the praises of your sustainer before sunrise and before sunset rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam utilized the opportunity of the sahaba radiyallahu anhu looking at the full moon by explaining to them that seeing allah ta'ala in the hereafter with such clarity and ease will be possible for the believers in paradise yes continue teaching through humor subtle humor provides amusement and di diversion to a person it lightens the burden of fatigue difficulties and hardships are inevitable in life but through humor the burden of these is lessened a person can learn from a smiling person more than what he can learn from a stern and frowning person continuous seriousness is burdensome on the mind and heavy on the thoughts occasional humor refreshes and revitalizes a person light humor is a very sweet teaching aid and a and a jovial remark helps in guiding the, and enlightening a student one can thus gauge how intelligent this wise dignified affectionate and merciful teacher was rasulullah used to joke and jest with his sahaba anhu, on certain occasions however he spoke nothing but the truth he taught many things through joking and humor used to joke because the people were commanded to emulate him and follow in his footsteps. Had he abandoned a cheerful countenance and a pleasant expression and stuck to seriousness and sternness, the people would have adopted this approach despite it being against their nature and temperament. He joked with them so that they could do the same, but he spoke nothing but the truth. So this was also the sunnah of Rasulullah that our Ummah is one that smiles and is happy and is welcoming. إنما كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يمزح بالتأسي به والاقتداء بهديه فلو ترك الطلاقة والبشاشة ولمس العبوس والقتوب لأخذ الناس أنفسهم بذلك على ما في مخالفة الغريزة من المشقة والعناء فمزح ليمزحوا So Rasulullah صلى الله عليه وسلم He was jocular and he was happy and joyous so people would know this is how you're supposed to be this is how you should be as a teacher Light-hearted, jolly. When needed to be serious, be serious. Your jokes should not be at the cost of another person. They should not degrade your value in the eyes of the student. The student shouldn't see you losing your dignity because of the type of jokes you're using in that moment just to engage them. You are not an entertainer. You are an educator. And using jokes should be to achieve your goal in education not selling out the quality of what you're saying or the seriousness of what you're saying because you're referencing something that diminishes that seriousness. You have to choose very carefully what you're saying and how you're saying it. فَمَزَحَ لِيَمْزَحُ وَكَانَ لَا يَقُولُ إِلَّا حَقَّ وَقَالَ الْإِمَامُ النَّوِي فِي كِتَابِهِ الْأَذْكَارِ الْمِزَاحُ الْمَنْهِي عَنْهُ هُوَ الَّذِي فِيهِ إِفْرَاتٌ وَيُدَاوَمُ عَلَيْهِ فَإِنَّهُ Imam Nawi says that the type of um, jest, 
that is disliked in the deen, that which is excessive. And a person is always joking, non-stop, just joke after joke after joke. Because it leads to everyone just laughing all the time. And it hardens the heart. And it distracts a person from the remembrance of Allah. And pondering, reflecting over the serious and important matters of the deen. And many times it brings a person back to harming other people. And it causes animosity in the hearts of, of friends and students and teachers that it's easy to go too far. You might say something that hurts someone. And excessive joking um, can also cause the student to lose respect. Yusqitul mahaba. Mahaba is a hayba, like an awe that a student should have of their teacher. They lose that. Walwaqar and respect. فَأَمَّا مَا سَلِمَ مِنْ هَذِي الْأُمُورِ فَهُوَ الْمُبَاحُ الَّذِي كَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ يَفْعَلُهُ فِي نَادِرٍ مِنَ الْأَحْوَالِ لِمَصْلَحَةٍ وَتَطْيِيبِ نَفْسِ الْمُخَاتَبِ وَالْمُؤَانَسَتِهِ وَهَذَا لَا مَنْعَ لَهُ قَطْعًا بَلْ هُوَ سُنَّةٌ مُسْتَحَبَّةٌ إِذَا كَانَ بِهَذِهِ الصِّفَةِ فَاعْتَمِدْ هَذَا فَإِنَّهُ مِمَّا يَعْظُمُ الْاحْتِيَاجُ إِلَيْهِ وَبِاللَّهِ التَّوْفِيقُ So then Imam Nawawi rahmatullahi says as for a joke or uh, or laughing and, and, and joking with people that is pure of what was mentioned earlier, excessiveness and so on, then it is permissible. It is permissible. That Prophet Sometimes. At times Rasulullah Why would he do this? Due to a... Due to a what? Huh? A greater good. There was something behind it. There was a goal, an objective that Rasulullah was trying to accomplish. And to make the person that he was speaking to feel a little comfortable. That was the purpose behind it. A small joke to make that person feel happy. And this is actually not uh, discouraged at all. Yes, go ahead. Bukhari, Muslim, Abu Dawood, Timothy, and Ibn Majah, narrate on the authority of Anas ibn Malik, who said, Rasulullah sallallahu used to visit us. I had a small brother who was called Abu Umayyad. He had a bird which he would play with, and it died. When Rasulullah sallallahu came to visit us, he noticed that my brother was sad. So he asked, so he asked, what has happened to him? The people of the house said his bird died. Rasulullah sallallahu said to him, that, that's the end of the statement. Now, when you read that statement in translation, it loses all of its uh, uh, all of its um, excitement, I would say, and its joy. This is a great example of how things are lost in translation. The depth of a statement is lost. But if you look at the statement, Ya Aba Umair, Ma Fa'al Nughair. How Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam addressed and sort and, and dealt with the issue. It's beautiful, because he posed a question to this young man who was sad. And when a person's sad over something, specifically if they're young, you want to get them to talk about it. So he dealt with the situation by asking a question, probing him. Why don't you go and tell us what happened? 
Imagine the joy for this child, how happy he must have been that the greatest of all mankind is sitting next to him and he gets to spill his heart out and tell him how sad he is because his birdie passed away. Ya Aba Umair, ma fa'alan nughayr. And then Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam uses this rhyming, Ya Aba Umair, ma fa'alan nughayr, because kids love rhyming, right? You'd rhyme their name a little, it brings a smile to their face. Go to a young kid and rhyme their name, right? Uh, Radiya is crazya. She'll just start laughing, it's so dumb. But she'll laugh because kids love the rhyme. Ya Aba Umair, ma fa'alan nughayr. And then we also see the, the author, rahimahullah ta'ala, he lays out, he actually has listed for us, I think it's 11 or 12 points that can be deduced from reading this uh, narration, some fawaid. There are actually, I've seen a risala dedicated, a small little booklet dedicated just to this riwayah and the points that can be deduced from this statement of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa We'll read them in the words of the author. Go ahead. The following lessons are derived from this hadith. Aliyah can specifically visit some of his followers. He can intermingle with some of his followers and not others. A learned person may convey his knowledge to one who will benefit from it. The permissibility of joking is established. Moreover, it is permissible to joke with a child who has not yet reached the age of understanding. It is permissible to address someone who is not yet a father by the title of Abu, meaning father. Yeah, he referred to him as Abu Umair. And Abu Umair means the father of Umair. And obviously he's a child, he doesn't have a, he does, he's a child himself, so he doesn't have a kid. But here we learn, jawazu, um, uh, the, the permission of taqniya, of, of giving a kunya, man lam yurad lahu walad, the one that does not have a child. Yes. It is permissible for a child to play with birds provided no harm is caused to them. Yeah, that's the main thing in Islam, that... People ask this question that is it permissible to have pets? Of course it is. As long as that it doesn't affect your deen in any way. If the pet brings najasa into your home, impurity into your home, and becomes a barrier for worshiping Allah, then no. Similarly, if the pet can cause harm to you, then no. That's not a, that's not a safe thing to do. Similarly, you don't harm that animal. They say regarding Imam Al-A'raj, the famous scholar, um, that he had a bird and he, he was playing with his bird so he tied a, uh, a rope to one of the legs of the bird and as the bird would fly, he would pull it down. And the bird was flying, he'd pull it down. So his mama said, stop this. You're going to hurt the bird. So he continued doing it and he pulled the rope too hard and it broke the leg of the bird. So his mother said, may Allah do to you what you did to this bird. He became Imam Al-Araj, the one with the limb. Yes. It is permissible for those who are entrusted with children to allow them to have such pets. It is permissible to spend money on permissible items with which a child may amuse itself. Yeah. So you're buying toys, buying things of your hobby. It's jayas for you to buy these things. It can also be deduced from this Niriwaya. Yes. It is permissible to keep birds in cages and other similar enclosures. Yes. One should deal with people according to the level of their intellect and understanding. It is permissible to address a person by his diminutive name if he is not offended by it. Mm -hmm. In this case, the child was addressed as a woman. Diminutive is like, in English, in Arabic, we call this tazghir. Tazghir is like you, you minimize the 
the, the, the verb form to represent, you actually add a letter in the verb form to, to, to uh, portray a smaller version of what you're talking about. So for example, you would say Junaid, or you would say Hussein. What's another one? Usaid, yeah, small lion. Hussein, small beauty. The Arabs would do this specifically when talking to kids as a gesture of affection. So instead of calling someone just Hassan, which was a name as well, you would then refer to a child as Hussein. That's the scale. Fu'ilun is the scale. You put a, you put a word, a noun on that, and it gives tazghir. Yes? It is permissible to ask about something despite having knowledge of it, provided that it does not entail a mockery. In this case, Rasulullah asked, what has happened to the lady, despite knowing that it had died? Read that next part too, it's fascinating. I don't know if he has it there. Is it there? No? وَبَعْضُ الْعُلَمَاءِ شَرَحَ هَذَا الْحَدِيثَ فِي جُزْءٍ مُسْتَقِلٍ إِسْتَخْرَجَ مِنْهُ أَكْثَرَ مِنْ سِتِّينَ فَائِدَةً كَمَا فِي الْفَتْحِ الْبَارِي That Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani deduced over 60 points of benefit from this one riwayah. يَا أَبَا عُمَيْرْ مَا فَعَلَ النُّغِيرِ The depth of these ulama. وَبَعْضُهُمْ أَوْصَلَهَا إِلَىٰ أَكْثَرْ مِنْ ثَلَاثِ مِئَةِ فَائِدَةٍ While others continue deducing rulings and points of lessons from this riwayah that the number reached how much? 300. كَمَا أَشَارَ إِلَىٰ ذَلِكَ شَيْخُنَا عَبْدُ الْحَيْءِ الْكَتَّانِ whose son, as you all know, passed away today. Shaykh Abdul Hayy al-Kattani, um, um, son, rahimahullah ta'ala, um, he passed away. He was a great scholar, one of the uh, most senior scholars of our time. He was from Morocco. SubhanAllah, everyone was celebrating the victory today in Morocco over Spain, right? Just a few hours earlier, Shaykh al-Kattani, rahimahullah ta'ala, had passed away. I think he was um, 107 years old. Very old man, very old man. With his passing, one of the shortest asanid to Rasulullah also left the dunya. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala fill the graves, his grave with nur. He lived his life teaching hadith. He lived his life teaching hadith. People would travel to Morocco, I know, and they would say, when we were in England, my friends would say to me, Oh, we're going to Morocco because it's not too far away. Why are you going? To get Sanad al Hadith from Sheikh Qatani. They were going, they would go to a country just to get Ijazah and Hadith from him. La ilaha illallah. As uh, Sheikh Muntasir was saying earlier, he had become a destination himself. That people from across the world, our dear teacher at Qalam, Sheikh Muntasir himself, traveled to meet Sheikh Qatani and to take Ijazah and Hadith from him as well. I believe he went right before COVID. Right before COVID happened, a group of students, and he went with one or two students, right? They went to Morocco. Yeah, two or three students, they all went to Morocco. And on their uh, trip, they also had the chance of sitting with Sheikh Qatani. May Allah fill his grave with Nur. وَقَالَ الْعَلَّامَ الْمُوَرِّخَ الْأَدِيبَ الْمُقَرَّةِ فِي نَفْحِ الطِّيبِ فِي بَابِ الْخَامِسِ عِنْدِ ذِكْرِ كَلَامِ اللِّسَانِ الدِّينِ ابْنِ الْخَطِّيبِ that they were scholars who actually deduced upwards of 400 fawaid lessons from this one narration. Yes, continue. 
method number 23, emphasizing by taking an oath. Rasulullah used to often rehearse his speech by taking an oath in the name of Allah Ta'ala in order to draw attention to the importance of what he was about to say or to strengthen and emphasize an order. A person takes an oath to uh, in what Rasulullah was saying, alayhi salatu wasalam. Yet Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasalam continued to at times take oaths. Why? Ta'kidan. Therefore, he says, that he would emphasize it to make it clear that what is being said right now, it is very serious. He narrates the riwayah of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu. Qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, wal ladhi nafsi biyadi, la tadkhurun al-jannata hatta tu'minu, wa la tu'minu, hatta tahabu, awala adullukum ala shay'in, idha fa'altumuhu tahababtum. Qal, Rasulullah said, he took an oath, by the one in whose hand my soul lies. You will not enter into paradise until you believe. And you will not believe until you love one another. Until you love one another. Should I not tell you what will cause love to exist among you? Spread the greeting of salam among yourselves. That when you see someone, you say a salam to them. Yes, go ahead. Method number 24. Sorry, one moment. I just have to emphasize this again. We're talking about emphasis. Rasulullah took an oath when conveying this message. Doesn't it sound like something simple? The message seems to be very fundamental. Say salam to one another. Isn't that something we're taught from, young, from a young age? That when you meet someone, you greet them. Yet Rasulullah is taking an oath and emphasizing this because these statement, Assalamu alaikum, if said properly with love, has the power to unite an entire ummah. The issue is that we don't say it. And those of us who say it do so with a straight face without any love. Such a simple thing. If you're wondering, what can I do to unite the ummah? You don't need to go on, a, on some protests. Do that later, inshallah. You don't need to give some big lecture or write something on social media. Do all that later, inshallah. First, start by saying salam to the people that you meet. I'm amazed till today when I see people in our own congregations and in communities that we've been to, that we've been a part of, that people still don't say salam to one another. They're putting shoes on. Alaikum salam. See, he did it. Um, they're putting their shoes on, barely two feet away from one another, but they still won't say salam. How are the hearts ever going to be united? How will the next generation ever change if what they've seen in their parents is selective greeting and selective affection and love? It can't change. It changes when the people that you grow up with are, uh, are universal in their affection. They don't discriminate at all. When I grew up in Kentucky, my parents had a motel, not one of the fancy ones, one of the sticky ones. We had a motel. It's a humble business that we had as a family. It was off of a, off of a highway. I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with the motel world, but you have like... You know, like the hotels in, uh, invite like a type of 
person the hotels do like you know people at the hilton and the sheraton it's the type of person that goes there obviously i'm generalizing here but the motel world is a different type of person it's a different segment of the community people who can actually afford that you know twenty dollar a night a twenty a thirty dollar a night it's like a waffle house Compared to, I don't know, what's a fancy breakfast place? Cracker Barrel? No. <laughs> oh, what's the fancy breakfast place? All these fancy breakfast places are, they all, they're all, their names are all puns. That's why I don't like them. Excellence. Jahil people. So, um, I think it was one of the, most powerful experiences of my life growing up in a motel. Powerful experience. Everyone came. All walks of life. And seeing my parents interact with them as a child, seeing them respect the humanity of the person who literally at that moment had nothing in his ownership other than what was in his pocket. That guy. Not just one of them, every day, 10 of those people. Seeing my mother, rahimahullah, cooking food for these people, she would ask them in her uh, very firm voice, did you eat anything? And that guy would say, no. She would say, okay, come back in half an hour. And she would make some dal chawal for them. And she would make food for them. My father had said to the sheriff, because there was a prison nearby, that if any of the inmates that are released have nowhere to go, they can stay with us for three days for free. It was, it was a profound experience, just seeing that, being with them. Then my father telling us, go clean their sheets, go empty their garbage, go look after them, take care of them. You know, Doug would take us sometimes to Walmart, going with random Randy, who could pop his eye out. True story. <laughs> he had one of those glass fixtures. You guys ever seen those glass fixtures? You ever seen him when you Yeah, Randy used to pop his eye out when, he, when I was young. There was a guy who lived in our hotel, motel. Um, he stayed at our motel. Are you ready for this? I mean, for 20 years, there was one guy. He stayed at our motel for, it gets better. He stayed at our motel for 20 years. We had never gone in his room. He was very private, which, which is his right, obviously. Guess what his name was? Huh? What do you say? Hussein, no, his name was not Hussein. He wasn't Muslim. You ready? This, I, I didn't, it, it didn't mean anything to me when I was young, but when I grew older and I became familiar with culture, I tripped. I had a full, I was like, what happened for 20 years? His name was John Smith. You guys understand the reference, right? Like that's an ambiguous name. That's not a real name. This guy lived with us for 20 years. And his name was John Smith. My brother and I joke sometimes that he must have been some like, you know, Area 51 guy who was hiding or something. <laughs> the point that I was making is that it was a powerful experience. Just seeing people from different walks of life and being with them. Truly humbling not having any, any discrimination in love. 
Zero discrimination. I mean, some of these guys would come and they would refer to my dad with like foul words. In jest though. I mean, imagine being a young kid and you see some guy walk in and sit, using like the N word, the F word while talking to your father. I was like, and my father said to me, this is how they express their love. Right? These, these people, they're not being foul. They're expressing their love like this. We will, uh, you know, hide um, anyway. Rasulullah taught us to be to give salam without any discrimination. I mean, is that overkill? Someone can argue that so much. You won't enter into paradise until you believe. You won't believe until you love. The way you love is assalamu alaikum. That sounds like a lot. It's because it is that important. It's that important. That for the hearts of the students on a campus to come together, they can't just play basketball together. It won't do it. They can't just eat together. That won't do it either. Before they eat, before they play basketball, before they do game night, they will need to learn the fundamentals of saying assalamu alaikum to one another in a meaningful way. If they can do that, now bring them together in basketball, you'll see their, your, their hearts will connect. Now bring them together for an iftar at the masjid. Bring the shabab together for game night. Things will change. Bring these class, teach these students every day that walk into class, for those of you that are teachers and educators at Islamic schools or public schools, that greet one another respectfully first. If you can do that, now we stand a chance at becoming a team. We can become one. These team building activities will work. But if we can't do this fundamental thing of saying salam to one another, all these activities are futile. They're not going to yield what we're looking for them to yield. That you will spread salam with one another. We'll close here. I'll share one story. My teacher and mentor, Sheikh Yusuf Rahimullah Ta'ala. One day I was driving him and I dropped him off home. He was old, white beard. And after I dropped him off, I drove a little ahead. And I don't know, in my mind I thought, let me see how he enters the home. Maybe there's a learning moment here. He was a Shaykh al-Hadith. I was a young student. So I pulled up a little ahead and I was watching. In my car, rolled the window down, I was just watching. And what I saw was something so special. May Allah give us tawfiq, me first and foremost, because I was the one who saw it, to do amal on this. That when he entered into the home, this is what he did. He opened the door. He opened his arms and stood by the door and said out loud in a very joyful way, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. His grandkids came, hugged him, he then walked inside the house. And I thought to myself, this is how muhabba comes into a family. When we enter into our homes, we say salam too. Salam alaikum. Like, you know, like, with anger. As if you just had some pepper or something and you're like constipated. That's, that's not going to increase muhabba. Is it? That's not going to increase muhabba. Muhabba will come when people see the joy that you have when you see them. That's where muhabba will come. That they see you smiling and not just one day, every day. 
every day when you see mama is, even when you answer her call, for those of you that whose parents are far away, I'm telling you, when you say salam to your parents over the phone, smile while you're saying salam, they'll feel your smile. Just smile. Salaam alaikum, mama, kaise Mama, how are you? Just that. They, they won't be able to see it, but they'll feel it. That that person said salam to me. Your parent may say, what's wrong? Abnormal. Something's off here. But this is the way. Spread salam among one another. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa teachings were so simple and easily applicable. You don't find anywhere in the deen that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam gave solutions to communal, societal issues that could only be implemented by politicians. But the average person feels lost, weak, robbed of any power or ability because the solutions to society only lie in the hands of a select few. You guys watch these late night shows where they're criticizing different policies. At the end of every one of them, John Oliver, you watch it. At the end of every one of them, his solutions are governmental. It's advocating to the government. There's never a solution that people actually control in their own hands. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam taught us. His teachings were so easy. that Everyone can be a part of the solution. Everyone could be. You want to be a part of the solution? Come. Afshus salam Start tomorrow. Start today. And very soon, you'll realize the power of that salam. And what it can do. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.